Welcome to the Bayma Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we're covering the life of Isaac Yitzhak, as seen in Genesis 24 and 26, where we begin to see the initial realization of God's promise to Avraham. Uh, now, before we get started, we do have actually a little bit of follow-up. Um, when we were talking a couple episodes ago about circumcision, and we didn't know uh, what other cultures observed circumcision, and we got a little bit of feedback on that. So, Yeah, we had some listeners. I had uh, actually a few listeners make some comments, uh, one in particular, big shout out to Christy uh, for helping us out, but uh, she actually had a whole bunch of uh, found some notes, had some notes, uh, and just kicked some stuff around, but um it was just a good question, and uh, glad I didn't make any promises when we were doing that podcast about what I knew and didn't know. Even a basic Wikipedia search uh, educated me up a little bit about that. So you can actually look at that male circumcision on Wikipedia, and and uh, it has an article about um, just some of the history there and some of the thoughts. A lot of that history we don't know a lot about, but there were some other cultures, even some other like disconnected cultures, African cultures that seemed to practice it more as a, a rite of passage or uh, entrance into manhood. But the big one that might be relevant to the biblical conversation, uh, Christy pointed this out, was Egyptians. And it may be argued which came first, but it would seem, uh, based on the history we have, um, pretty close to the same time, maybe a few centuries before the Egyptians are practicing circumcision. Uh, this would be possibly even before Avraham, uh, before they go down there, um, but they're practicing circumcision. Now, the best records we have seem to indicate that they are uh, practicing circumcision in terms of priesthood. What What's really cool about that is it seems from what we know that the Egyptians are circumcising priests. It's a mark of priesthood. If God has all males circumcised when they come out uh, and and begin to become a kingdom of priests, if you will. It's a mark of priesthood that everybody, all, all males, get, which is a pretty interesting play there coming off of the culture they're used to. But there's a few sources you could look at. Um, one of my good friends, George DeYoung, uh, he taught a little bit on it in his material uh, in Egypt, and he does some study tours over there. He has a ministry called Under the Fig Tree, uh, and he taught a little bit about that. He actually has a um, seems to uh, have an opinion that it was also connected to a rite of man, uh, kind of a passage into manhood, a rite of passage, so to speak, even in the Egyptian culture. Uh, Sandra Richter, somebody pointed out, actually makes a passing comment in Epic of Eden. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if it was in Epic of Eden or not now that I think about it, but Sandra Richter has made, she teaches something called the seven minute seminary and it could have easily maybe come out of that as well. And then, um, uh, another source here that, uh, Christy sent me, uh, Robert G Hall, uh, in an, in an article in, on circumcision in the anchor Bible dictionary. Um, it, uh, it does some, some talking about ancient Egypt and the practices of circumcision there. So yeah, it's always good to toss out a question and actually have listeners, get back to us. That was pretty cool. So thanks for everybody for engaging that conversation. It actually has added an element to my teaching for the future. So I like that. I'm going to keep studying that. Absolutely. All right. So let's move on to Yitzhak, Genesis 24 and 26. Don't worry, we'll come back to 25 here shortly, but covering Genesis 24 and 26 today. Yeah, I wanted to deal with uh, the life of Isaac today and kind of make a couple observations, uh, two big ones, one out of 24 and one out of out of 26. And uh, and then the next podcast or two, we'll go through the life of Jacob, life of Jacob. 
and, and spend our time there. So uh, we'll end up coming back to the birth of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 next time. But uh, if I were to start in Genesis 24, we end up having the uh, story of, of Yitzhak, of Isaac needing, needing a wife. And um, we'll just kind of walk through this and see if you got any questions as we go through, and we'll kind of chat about this, Brent. Uh, Avraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant of his household, the one in charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Yitzhak. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come with me back to this land? Shall I take your son back to the country you came from? And Abraham responds, make sure you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Okay, so... This hand under the thigh business is that like a is that like a pinky promise? <laughs> what is this? It sure seems that way. Uh, the thigh in the ancient cultures was very often an idiom for uh, the groin and the organs located near it. So what Avraham is is doing is you would. If you did make a uh, pinky promise is actually an interesting way of, of looking at it. If you made a, if you made a promise, if you made a covenant, you would often swear that oath by holding on to the sign of that covenant. And so obviously we know where the sign of Avraham's covenant is. So when he says, put your hand under my thigh, he's essentially asking him to make a covenant in a very Eastern way. Nothing sexual about it, uh, in regards to how we would react to that, but definitely an interesting uh, figure of speech and Hebrew idiom that is uh, adds a little color to the story. <laughs> but nevertheless, we have um, uh, Avraham here making sure that he gets a wife not from the from the Canaanites, but he goes to that one house that's left from his father Terah, the house of Nahor, is where he's going to end up going. If we remember where we left. Nahor, Lahor, and Terah, they had settled in Haran. And uh, many times this, this Abraham's family is going to end up going back to this other family who comes from the same stock as his father, Terah. And so that's where they're having to go find a wife. And uh, interesting conversation. The servant wants to know, you know, this is a pretty far-fetched, pretty far-fetched request here. What if she doesn't, what if she doesn't come back? And and Avraham trusts in God so much that he says, listen, if if you don't find a wife for my son, you can be free from your, I can, I'll release you from your servitude to me. Uh, I'll give you your freedom as a slave. I'll, I'll send you on your way. Um, pretty big, pretty big promise. Now, this was the senior servant in the household. Does that mean that he's in charge or he's the oldest or what is senior? Is that a... Yeah, he's the chief. He's a chief... Uh, house servant. So that means that he's basically, yeah, he's in charge. In a lot of ways, he's he's in charge of the, he's practically in charge of the estate um, and its physicality. He's not, there's no inheritance. He's not in charge of it. 
he doesn't have any claim to it, but he's in charge of the day-to-day runnings of, we were told earlier that Avraham has 318 people in his household. Most of those have to be servants. And Eliezer is going to be the the chief of all of those, kind of the, the head manager. Now, obviously we're not there yet, but is this going to be similar to the relationship of Joseph to Pharaoh that we'll see later on? Where Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything. That's a good. That's a good question. In some ways, yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be similar to the relationship of Joseph, but, but it's also going to be quite a bit different. Joseph has a much more formal, uh, respectable relationship with Paro, um, much more uh, uh, official and a much more claim uh, claim to his position, where uh, chief servant is definitely within the household, and it would have been looked down on much more than. Maybe not like we think of servitude or, or, or slavery uh, in our culture. It's definitely different than that, but not a glorious position by any stretch of the imagination like Joseph had in Egypt. So then final question. Yes. Um, Avraham has, has this uh, sticking point like in no way. Like there's no reason that Isaac's going back to, Correct. to the other land. Correct. So is the servant thinking like, hey, if she's not willing to come back, like – do I just bring Isaac over and let him pick his own wife? Right. And Abraham says, no. Absolutely. So what is, what is Abraham's concern? Concern here is that God called them to leave the father's household. They were not to settle in Haran. God was doing something new. And that's going to come up in the, in a little bit this story, but in the life of Jacob, this is going to become a big deal. Um, God, if you remember, God needed Avraham to keep moving. Just like the story of the Tower of Babel, you can't settle, you can't settle, you can't settle. So he can't let his son go back, go backwards, metaphorically speaking, and settle with the family of Nahor. Not that there's anything wrong or pagan about, but even that we're going to find out later in the story of Genesis. Um, We have some God worship issues going on with the family of Nahor. So it's important that Isaac doesn't, he keeps to the promise. This is the land. This is the promise. This is the mission that God has called the family to. You need to you need to hang with what God's doing with the world. And if Isaac goes back, he's like, oh, well, so, I mean, since we're here, we might as well get married. And, right. Well, you know, this big party, we got a lot of cleaning up to do. And, That's uh, correct. And next thing you know, they're, yep. they're stuck. Yep, absolutely. <clears throat> so uh, the servant leaves. Eliezer leaves, taking with him 10 of his master's camels. So he's got 10 camels. It's a pretty big deal. Loaded uh, with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for... Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. Uh, he had the camels kneel down near the well outside of town. It was toward evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he prayed. It's an interesting prayer here. He prays, Lord God, my ma- God of my master Avraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Avraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, this is a really interesting prayer. Because Eliezer is basically setting up. He's just made a request that not many of us understand. Um, he finds himself at a well, a cistern in their culture. And uh, he, he is asking God to have a woman come out and, and offer water to him, which that wouldn't be a big deal. 
But he's at, he's saying, without me asking, I want her to offer to water my camels. Now, a camel, in order to wa- water a camel, that takes uh, the Bedouins and, and those that live in the Middle East, say, anywhere from 10 to 20 trips into a cistern, depending on how watered the camel already is, depending on how big your jars are. So she's making, he's asking God to send somebody to him that is willing to voluntarily offer to make at least 100 trips down into a now you were with me this summer brent uh you got to walk down into a cistern how about how about a hundred times up and down those steps well it was pretty fun the one time i'm not so sure i'd want to do it a hundred i don't i don't even know if i'd want to do it 10 times i mean it's narrow yeah it's it's a pretty decent distance down there it's maybe a story and a half yeah yeah Uh, and that would be very typical i mean it might change here and there but that was very typical the cisterns i've been in in the middle east ancient cisterns in particular uh so this is he has just asked god to provide something ridiculous like totally outlandish it makes me wonder if uh if this isn't Eliates are going, well, i get my freedom if i can't find a lady huh okay well here's my only god request Kind an of offer thing. that has not been made before or since. <laughs> right. So before he had finished praying, verse 16, I love that, Bef- or 15, excuse me. Before he had finished praying, Rivka, Rebecca, came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milka, who was the wife of Avraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin, no man had ever slept with her, and she went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all of his camels without saying a word. The man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. And the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master, Avraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to to his master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And I... I don't think we'll read the whole rest of the chapter as we are here on the podcast. I would invite people to actually read this, uh, read the rest of this chapter, because it is going to be relevant, I think, to some of the things we'll look at in the New Testament far down the road. So it's not that this uh, rest of this chapter is too obscure, and there will actually be some stuff there. So make sure you read it on your own time. But my point in looking at Genesis 24 um is I think I see here one of the reasons, the questions that you brought up earlier, Brent, one of the reasons that Avraham demands that Eliezer goes to the house of Nahor. This family of Terah has a particular 
they are made, I keep using this phrase, I don't know why, they are made of a particular stock. Like they have a kind of DNA, uh, a spiritual DNA in them that makes them, what we see in Rebecca is the exact same kind of generosity and hospitality that we saw in the story of Avraham, if you remember, when he ran to greet, when he hurried and ran to greet the three visitors in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And she's made of the same stuff. And it makes me even wonder if that's why Eliezer prays the prayer that he prayed. He didn't just pick some random prayer of like, I, I want some outlandish prayer that only God can answer. He said, if there's a wife here, that's worthy of my master's son. It's going to be a woman who is as dedicated to hospitality as my master is, made of the same kind of stuff. So God, I want a woman who'd be willing, and let's not make this about women who are willing to serve. Let's make this about something much bigger and wider in the, in the realm of hospitality. I'm looking for a person who's willing to go down into a cistern a hundred times in order to water the camels of a visitor. And uh, I just see God choosing to work through this family over and over and over again. And I keep seeing the DNA of the people of God put on display in these stories. The people of God are a people that are committed to generosity and hospitality. And this guy's the head servant. Because he's been around for a while, right? Absolutely. Like this he's guy has seen a... this hospitality in action many times. Absolutely. This guy is as intimate with uh, with knowing Avraham as anybody in the family, especially outside of the immediate family. This guy is essentially on a lot of levels. He is immediately. He is immediate family. He doesn't have an inheritance. He doesn't have a legal or a covenantal claim on anything. But he is as part of the family as anybody else that's in this household. He knows Avraham as good as anybody does. And I think that might be where his prayer comes from. And I like this sentence. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Right. Like, is she going to say, yeah, I'll water your camels. But then is she going to give up halfway through? Right. But she finishes it. That's like right. Like she carries, uh, she follows through. Right. And, and Rivka is absolutely, like you said, just a cut above. She is, she is just something else. And even her family's going to demonstrate incredible hospitality. She brings Eliezer and the 10 camels to the home. They have straw, they have fodder, they put him up, they give him, uh, they serve him food. They do the typical thing that you would do in the Middle East. This family is the kind of family that Avraham came from. And Rivka is just uh, an all-star in, in that in that story. So, um I just love to see the consistent story of God's people played out in person after person after person. But uh, so anyway, if we were to jump over to Genesis 26, we're going to see kind of the rest of the story of Isaac. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, we'll read through this and, and, uh, and see what happens here. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Yitzhak went to Avimelech king of the Pilishtim in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Yitzhak and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you, for you and your descendants. 
for to you and your descendants. I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Avraham. And I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Avraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So God, this, this story starts with God coming to Isaac and kind of reiterating the promise that he made to his father, which is that through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And when the, man of that, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she was my wife, he thought the man of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. But when Isaac had been there a long time, Avimelech, king of the Pilishtim, looked down from a window and saw Yitzhak caressing his wife, Rivka. So Avimelech summoned Yitzhak and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Yitzhak answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Avimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife. And you would have brought guilt upon us. So Avimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, does that strike you as odd for any reason, Mr. Billings? Uh, well, it seems very similar to a story that we heard before. <laughs> and yet the the end of the line is very different than the first time we heard it. Right. Tell me tell me more about how, you, how it's different. So Abraham goes down to Egypt and says that Sarai, well, I guess Avram goes to Egypt, says Sarai is is my sister a relative. And uh, Pharaoh says, okay, cool. Let's uh, bring her right into my household. Right. And now this time says the same thing and then finds out that she's actually his wife and says, okay, nobody lay a finger on anyone. Right. Uh, There's now, no, no gifts exchanged this time. And maybe there might even be a reason why it happens that way this time. Did this happen only once in Abraham's life? Uh, well, he no, he did this twice. Correct. And who did he do it to the second time? Do you remember? What am I thinking of right now? Oh, no, I'm thinking of the... Well, yeah, there's two of those and there's two of the other things. I was thinking of the story of Lot where he says that Lot is his brother, even though he's not his brother. Right. This comes back at the end of Abraham's life, and he commits the same sin a second time to a king by the name of, hmm, let's see, Avimelech. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Now, this could be, there's potential this could be the same guy. Probably unlikely. This is probably a son or maybe even a grandson or something like that. Very common for kings, uh, especially Avimelech means my my father is king is essentially what the name means. So it would be a very common name for a son to take who was the son of the original Avimelech. But something tells me that this family has a reputation for running this joke. And Avimelech has either been burned before or has heard the story of his father being burned before. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. I've got my eyes peeled on this one. I ain't buying this she's your sister stuff. Uh, Maybe. I'm totally reading more into the Texans there, but it's very interesting. But you have brought up the point I wanted to point out, which is this is a total replay of the life of Abraham. Like father, like son. Um and Avimelech, this is where Avraham's story kind of ended, uh, not totally ended, but ended Genesis 20-esque, uh, 20-ish. Uh, Genesis 20, uh, this is where the covenant that Avraham ends up making with Avimelech, this is towards the end of Avraham's life. And now we start Isaac's life with kind of a mere image of that story replayed. Now, is this the kind of story where you're going to kind of tell it around the, the fireplace at night? Like, oh, yeah, the, I did this this one time and... 
Ooh, that was close. Like Pharaoh almost, almost kept your mom. It almost didn't work out. Is you know, that like, is Isaac going to know about this? Or is this just like, he doesn't like Abraham's ashamed. Like, Hey, it worked out, but we got lucky and let's not talk about it. Like yeah. what, what is the, it's a great it work. Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure we could answer for sure. I would imagine he knows about it. I'm not sure if it's a campfire story, but I bet it's certainly a story he knows about in his family's history. I would think, uh, can't prove that or maybe say that with any definitive assurance, but I would think he's got to know this story. Um, or and, maybe he's just heard legends of someone who did this sure. and doesn't realize it was his own dad. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. And you know how we are. Again, I just find myself in the middle of these, these stories. This is a story of humanity. Like Isaac and Abraham are just like you and me. Like how many of us repeat the sins of our parents? sins of our fathers, the sins of our mothers. And we're like, well, I'll never be them. And then end up doing those things that we've spent our whole life trying to run from because it's a part of the patterns that we've learned. It's a part of what's what's in us. And I think we see that with Yitzhak. But okay, we're going to keep reading. Uh, Isaac planted crops in the land uh, that year and reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. And he had many flocks, which... Okay, so now I think of Avraham going down to Egypt, and he went down to Egypt and became very wealthy, and we talked about well, the negative impact of that. Now Isaac chooses, still making mistakes, but he chooses to not go down to Egypt, stays in the land, and the Lord blesses him, and he becomes very wealthy. And I wonder if we can listen to this story and go, if Avraham hadn't have gone down to Egypt, could God have blessed him? Interesting Interesting thing. All the wealth with none of the trouble. Or maybe not as much of the trouble. Not as much. Uh, So let's see here. Where did I leave off? Um, Reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds that the servants uh, and herds and servants that the Pilishtim envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Avraham the Pilishtim stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Avimelech said to Yitzhak, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. And Yitzhak opened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Avraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Avraham died, and he gave him the same names his father had given them. Yitzhak's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said the water is ours. Have we heard this story before? Oh, I'm not sure. Have we heard a story about herdsmen oh, arguing? this would be Abraham and Lot. Exactly. So we just encountered another retelling of the Abraham story in the life of Isaac. And you'll notice it's going what direction? Uh, It's going the other way. It's going backwards. It's like we're kind of retelling the life of Abraham, but the stories are going backwards. In a Jewish sense, they sometimes would look at this and say, it's almost like Isaac is redeeming the story of his father. Not that the story of his father needs a whole lot of redemption. It's pretty fantastic. But he's taking the mistakes. He starts with the mistakes of his father. And now he's going backwards through the life, almost like, so we'll see where this ends up, but it's interesting. I now have two stories that are taken very similarly out of the life of Avraham. And so he names the well Esek because they disputed with him and they dug another well. 
but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. And he moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. And so he named it Rehobot, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we shall flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Avraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Does that sound familiar? That's that's uh, textbook Abraham move right there. Absolutely. And where did that show up? And that was right at the beginning. Right. We just went backwards through the life of Abraham in one chapter describing the life of Isaac. It seems that the author wants us to see that the mistakes and the promises of his father, Avraham, are being realized in his own story. And so Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Avimelech had come up to him from Gerar with Ahuzat, his personal advisor, and Fikol, the commander of his forces. Yitzhak asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? Isaac's like, hey, you told me to leave. So why are you coming to me? They answered, listen to this. We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. So Yitzhak takes the promise and the mission of his father. He goes into this land and he chooses to stay in this land. God tells him to stay in this land. Don't go anywhere. Stay committed to the promise, which is exactly why Avraham said, don't go back to Nahor and let my son go back to Nahor and let him marry the, stay right here and be about the mission. And so he stays right there and he opens up wells and people come and they try to pick a fight. And he says, okay, they're your wells. And he digs more wells and they say, those are, okay, they're your wells. And he digs more wells and, okay, they're yours. And he, he just keeps submitting, even though he's being treated unjustly, he keeps living in this land, committed to the mission. And we were told at the beginning of this story, God came, if you remember the opening verses of Genesis 26, God came and said, this was the mission. I told your father, Avraham, I was going to bless all nations through you. And what do we see by the time we're done with this story? We see that the very promise that God made to Avraham is being realized through the work and the ministry of his son. Because now all of a sudden, the nations are coming out to, it worked. Like it worked. And I wish we would grab this in our culture because we don't trust in the process enough. We don't trust in forgiveness. We don't trust in selflessness. We don't believe that truly actually being selfless would actually move the kingdom of God forward. But here in the story of Abraham and Isaac, over the course of two generations, it does take some time. But over the course of two generations, the mission of God is working. They are blessing the nations around them, and people are calling on the name of his God, and they have seen that God is good. It's working. Something I think we could probably learn in our own world, in our own life. I feel like we could probably put this to work. Well, and and they're blessing 
the nations in spite of themselves, right? Exactly. Because the nations are like, uh, yeah, we don't really like you. We're going to fill in. That's a perfectly good well, but we're just going to put all the dirt in it. And then he goes and he redigs it. Right. And then he says, no, you guys go ahead and use it. Exactly. I'll dig another one. Oh, man. And we get this so backwards in the evangelical world today. Oh, they took, they took our, they made our, they messed up our coffee cup. Oh, man. They, they, they're just taking away all of our stuff and they're just infringing on all of our, no, like take a page out of the book of Yitzhak. Okay. Okay. Oh, you want to take that? Okay. Okay. Cause I'll show you what my God is like. My God is generous. My God is hospitable. My God will go down in a cistern a hundred times to water your camels. Like, okay, it wasn't your well, but I'm not going to sit here and argue. I'm not going to take you to court and try to protect my rights. Like, what a ungodly thing to do. I'm going to lay my rights down. And through this whole process, and this had to be excruciating. It wasn't easy. This was probably painful, incredibly frustrating, I mean, how did he sit there through this kind of injustice and not, but that's what he did because that was the mission. That is our mission, uh, even today. And so much to be learned from this kind of obscure life of Isaac that kind of gets lost in the narrative of the patriarchs. And even the trust that the servants have to have, the ones who are digging the wells. Oh, they're geez. like, are you kidding me? Like. They just filled that in. Right. If we dig it back out, how do we know they're not just going to fill it in again? Right. Right. Yeah. But then they're, you know, their chief servant. Right. From two chapters ago. Right. He says, you know what? I've seen the kind of stuff that, that you do for my master. Like, right. And we didn't, we didn't talk about that a whole lot, but he kept referring to God as the God of my master, not his Correct. own. Um, and yeah, at the end of that story, he finally owns God as his own God. Right. One of the most moving things that we didn't cover back in 24, uh, chapter 24. So was, I, th- I think that's why this, this works out with the servants in chapter 26. Like, yes. Yeah. Uh, I know this seems crazy, but we've been around and we've seen it work. We've right. seen we've right. seen the blessing that comes out of this. Yeah. I'm telling you, we ought to give it a try in our culture. It'd probably get us some, it'd probably get us a little ways. Make some progress. Oof. Yeah. It's hard, but we got to do it. Yeah. It's probably enough to marinate on for this lesson. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this show. Before we end, though, I know, uh, Marty, you've got a couple of um, updates with Impact Campus Ministries, and uh, you just kind of want to give us a a little bit of information about what's going on with with the ministry before we close out. Yeah, I won't won't do this a lot, but... um... A lot of people think I work for the church or, or that's where I get my paycheck and those kind of things, and I don't. Uh, I actually work for Impact Campus Ministries, and uh, we're a national uh, campus ministry organization all over the country. And I, I serve as the, uh, the chief executive for that uh, organization, and, and it's, it's that time of year where um, uh, year-end finances uh, stuff comes up. And uh, this is one of those ministries, the ministry that I do. Uh, I, I'm not supported by a church. I have to go out and raise funds for my own paycheck. Um, but even more importantly, the organization that I work for uh, is is an organization that's doing incredible work in lots of different places, 22 different campuses, uh, almost 20 full-time staff that we uh, help support and and love the work and the the mission and the vision of of impact, and you could find our website online, impactcampusministries.com. Um, but uh, one of the things I wanted to do before the year came to a close was just uh, toss out a, 
uh, uh, request that as people consider, a lot of people that own their businesses, a lot of people look at their own uh, tax situation as the year comes to a close, the calendar year comes to a close. Uh, they look at the kind of things they want to do for uh, for charitable giving. And uh, we have this great tax-deductible organization that they could consider. So we have information on the baymadiscipleship.com website. Uh, you can go there and you can find a little write-up on that. Uh, my family is still trying to hit our financial goals for the year to come. Uh, so our personal ministry um, is definitely one that we're still trying to raise some funds for. Uh, but even more importantly, one of the things I like to ask my listeners to consider is just the general fund for Impact Campus Ministries. That's Nobody likes to give to the general fund of an organization, and it's the least sexy uh, work and the least sexy fundraising that people like to give to. Uh, but it's critical for all of the all of the campus ministers that I help lead. Um, and so one of the things I'm, I'll, I'll use this podcast for every now and then is just to ask you to consider uh, supporting the work that, that we do, supporting the work that I do, um, and consider giving uh, to one of the places that you would feel led to give there. But um, one of the places that could really use it from my listeners would be the general fund. It helps us provide the support. It helps me do my job when I travel um, to all these different places. Uh, all those weeks where we don't have a podcast because I'm on the road, I'm out there trying to help give um, administrative and executive support to campus ministers just like me all around the country. And that takes resources. So uh, as you consider those year-end um donations and your charitable giving, uh, just consider uh, the work of impact. And if it's something that you'd, you enjoy, if it's something you appreciate, um, just know there's a lot of people out there contributing to that. And um, yeah, I'd love to, love to see that generosity shared that way. Absolutely. We'll have links for those, uh, those different organizations and all the information you need in the show notes. And uh, if you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com, including uh, schedule changes, information on uh, any of the stuff that Marty just talked about, all that stuff's on BaymontDiscipleship.com. And thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.